the London Book Fair last week, Andy. Uh, the whole, the whole of the publishing world converged on uh, Olympia, and, uh, and and much talking was done. Many fewer deals were done. Um, I was there for two days, but in and out, as they say. Listen, have you ever been to the book fair? No, no, I'm too busy writing, Andy. <laughs> <laughs> Ouch! <laughs> By far the best way. I think any writer who goes to the book fair at Olympia would probably go back to their hotel room and sit with their head in their hands. Demotivated from aircraft hangar full of miserable people. Uh, Well, I couldn't. I would hate to comment and agree with you entirely uh, on that issue. It's good for. It's great if you're if you're if you're selling rights and you're doing the deal and you're into doing the deal and you're seeing people from all over Europe and from the states. Then it's good. But if you're slightly feckless editor like I used to be <laughs> sort of you rather wander from stand to stand thinking oh well, what, what, what is this too many books there are too it, many books that's what didn't bring any I, mean, I, think that, there is, I think there is that sense of overload just the sheer it's not quite on the same scale as Frankfurt where you think this is absolute madness how, how can all these books exist simultaneously we have absolutely no chance let's just give up and go home or, or as Stuart says go out and get drunk with people we know and like yeah. uh, which is always speaking uh, of which <laughs> steady maybe we should start do you think okay hello and welcome to backlisted the podcast which does what it says on the tin if that is what's written on the tin says giving new life to old books and this tin is sponsored by unbound Nice. My name's John Mitchinson. I publish books at Unbound, the website which brings authors and readers together to create beautiful books. And uh, I'm Andy Miller. I'm the author of We Need to Talk About Kevin. (laughs) (laughs) And you join us here, gathered together in the dining room of the slightly down-at-heel boarding house, owned by Unbound in a small dormitory town in the Thames Valley, where today we'll be discussing, or discussing, The Slaves of Solitude. By Patrick Hamilton. Now, Patrick Hamilton, when John and I first discussed what Batlisted might be and which authors we might feature on Batlisted, I think it is accurate to say that the very first author we ever mentioned was Patrick Hamilton. Is that right? Do you remember In truth, that? it was <laughs> verily the book we've... Um, the reason uh, that we've held off doing Patrick Hamilton till now, there's a couple of reasons, but we've arrived at that now, and we were sort of saying, this is like ultimate backlisted TM, yeah. isn't it, this episode? Like ultimate cage fight. This is act, uh, act backlisted. <laughs> and, um, so uh, we're going to be talking about the novelist, playwright, man of letters, intellectual, actor, chronicler of lowlife, alcoholic, stalker, communist, communist apostate and inventor of gaslighting, Patrick <laughs> Hamilton. But we were worried that there wouldn't be enough to say about it. So if not, we're joined by not one but two guests. First of all, we're joined by the writer, uh, Stuart Evers, to talk about all things seedy, drunken and shabby. Is it on my script? Hello, Stuart. Hello. And uh, your book, uh, Ten Stories About Smoking, was published to great acclaim in 2011. And uh, we're also joined by returning guest to Backlisted. Really? Hence, ultimate Backlisted. <laughs> our guest on our very first episode. So long ago. The so novelist, ago. Lissa, it was about 50 years ago, wasn't it? Yeah. Lissa Evans. Uh, who has written four acclaimed novels for adults, two novels for children, the second of which, Wed Three. Wabbit. Three, the third of which, Wed Wabbit. The, the third, third of which, Wed Wabbit, <laughs> eyes Matt <laughs> furiously. <laughs> the third of which, Wed Wabbit, was published earlier this year. How's that doing? All right. <laughs> in a moment, in a moment, we're going to get into the meat of the show. But before we do, a bit of naked pleading. 
That's the sound of Andy slipping into something much less comfortable. If you're listening to this podcast before midnight on the 17th of April 2017, we'd be most grateful if you could vote for us in the British Podcast Awards Listener's Choice category. It's at britishpodcastawards.com forward slash vote. You then search for backlisted. Thank you for doing that. I've already Uh, done it. Have you? Thank you. Oh, thanks, Lisa. That's right. And if you're listening to this podcast after the 17th of April 2017, then you can ignore the previous two minutes and we'll just crack on with the show. John Mitchinson, what have you been reading this week? I've been reading something small and delicious this week, Andy, a book I've long wanted to talk about and completely forgotten about until you said to me just last week, what are you going to be reading next week? And I thought... What am I going to be reading that I can talk about? And because I obviously, as you know, working as a publisher, you read a lot of stuff that you wouldn't want to talk about, some of which you would. But this is a small, brilliant, high concept novel, or is it? Question mark, by Paget Powell. And the reason I chose this will come, will maybe come clear later on in the, in the show or towards the end of the show when we, we talk about things, even, even forsooth beyond Patrick <laughs> Hamilton. Paget Powell is a, an American novelist. I think he was born in Florida. He's the author of, I think, five novels. But this is the one that I absolutely loved. It and comes called The Interrogative Mood. And the trick is, it is written entirely in questions. Entirely in questions. And you would think this is the most tedious oh, thing. I, I just want to pull... Whoa, 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 wait, 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 wait a minute. Uh, Lisa pulling an excellent face, listeners, there. Because... <laughs> Has it, have, have either of us, Stuart, have you read this book? No. <laughs> <laughs> it's a very sad no. Lisa, have you, have you read this book? No. No. I haven't read this book, but I have ordered a copy of it because I looked, I looked it up after John said he was going to be reading it, and I did think exactly the look on. If you, listeners, oh you can't my see that. Oh, God. my goodness. Not this another looks piece like it might be quite experimental annoying, right? crap. Yeah. yeah, but equally, I sort of, and then I saw there's all sorts of, it's very, and I read some of it, and it seems to be very much in the highly, at the highly enjoyable end of the kind of totally. Nicholson Baker uh, much side more enjoyable than Very funny. Than a, than so it's very of, much at the, the higher yeah, well, end. Well, yeah, 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 yeah. But funny, yeah. but funny, right? Okay. Um, it, it, I don't know why it works. I can't tell you why it works. I picked it up with the same level of, of I have to say, with dread that, that I can see coming from around the table. <laughs> and yet, and yet I found myself sitting down and reading it and reading it very quickly and enjoying it and thinking about it a lot. Largely, I think, because the individual questions, the sort of the aperçu that uh, Powell gets into it, are, are just interest, interesting enough to, to... There's a brilliant sequence towards the end about Jimi Hendrix, which I'd read the whole thing of because it, it kind of is the best, probably the best sequence in the whole book. But just to give you a bit of flavour, I thought I'd just read this because this gives you flavour and you can dislike it or like it, whatever. But I... Anyone who wants to read something that is very, very unlike most of the naturalistic fiction that is around, that is not, I would say, experimental in any kind of you know difficult way, but is is actually is is sort of it is a weird work of philosophy. I really I I noticed I hadn't even noticed before it comes with a a, a Richard Ford quote. And I would have thought this is the thing he would the last thing he would have liked. But Richard Ford says if Duchamp or maybe Magritte wrote a novel and maybe they did did they, it might look something like this remarkable little book of Paget Powell's immensely readable, ingenious, witty, and ultimately important feeling in a way you can't quite describe but don't need to. Anyway, here's a, here's a paragraph from this, this, I think, fine book. 
Do you have any experience with boils? When people are weeping and fretting about you, do you console or attempt to move away as politely as possible? Do you find Mary Martin and Peter Pan sexually stimulating? Have you ever had cockles? Does Ireland sound like your kind of place or like someone else's kind of place? Have you ever been exposed to rigorous mathematical proofs? And if so, do you like them? Do you know the term for the kind of trowel used in applying certain adhesives that has teeth on its edge so that glue is laid down in fine rows instead of as a film? Does any confusion arise if you see or hear pinecone and cornpone together? Do you have any impulse to wish that everything you could own somehow without overmuch trauma may be made to disappear? If you had to threaten someone with either I want to slap that taste out of your mouth or I want to knock you into next week, which colourful expression would you prefer? <laughs> if someone threatened you with either of these utterances, would you reply, well, pack your lunch or you and whose army? And so on and so on. I tell you what this reminded me of. What I do when I want to annoy my son which is talk like this, <laughs> repeatedly. A little bit like that. Yeah. Rising inflection. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, I think that sounds very good. And I'm, I've I, ordered a copy, so... I have to agree. I was, I, it's, I'm, I'm one weirdly, of it shouldn't work, but it kind of does. And it, there obviously, there's no, there is no... What you begin to get through it is you begin to get... There are patterns, and you think... You do, annoyingly, think about a lot of the... A lot of the little insights through, through the book, and... You're, it's a book that invites you to try and see patterns, but doesn't really... I mean, you don't need to, as Richard Ford says. It sort of is what it is. It's a brilliant... As a sort of... You know, if you, if you like that kind of Perekian, yeah, Raymond Cano... I mean, yeah, I was going to say, it, it, it feels it's, very it's, it, it's, it's not quite as pleased with itself in any sense. That's the, the thing that slightly makes me not love Nicholson Baker is that smugness. <gasps> uh, I do a, love Nicholson I do. Baker. I love good Nicholson. I like the mezzanine. Anyway, that's... Paget Powell. Andy, what have yeah. you been reading? We should just, I want to add at this point that uh, our guest, uh, Stuart Evers, has very kindly mixed us delicious drinks uh, to enjoy uh, during the course of this Patrick uh, <laughs> But we can't try drink ours yet. What are we drinking, Stuart? Um, we're drinking a, a, a gin and French. Gin and French is the drink enjoyed to uh, oblivion by many characters <laughs> in, uh, <laughs> in Patrick it's Hamilton's the fuel. It's the fuel. It's the rod in Patrick Hamilton's pencil. If, if this was a Hollywood movie, you would, you would definitely think that gin and French was a product placement by the Coca-Cola <laughs> <laughs> So, so what I read this week, in keeping with the, the theme that I knew was coming for Ultimate Backlisted TM, was a novel by Keith Waterhouse, the late Keith Waterhouse. The late, great Keith Set in Brighton, called Palace Pier. And I have to thank uh, listener and unbound author E.O. Higgins for actually sending me a copy of this book when he knew that we were thinking about doing a show about Patrick Hamilton. He said, you must read this book if you like Brighton. I used to live in Brighton for several years and if you like Patrick Hamilton. So I read this book in one go. It's only about 200 pages. I read it in one go, which I reckon is approximately the same number of goes it took Keith Waterhouse to write it. (laughs) 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 And... um, it Put was him with the others. <laughs> it was, yeah. It was his Will bit, this do? There's little evidence of a strenuous rework. <laughs> um, but you know what? It's really, really enjoyable. So this is his 15th novel. It's published in 2003. Amazing. It's, set, it's a sort of Brighton romp. And as I said, I lived in Brighton for five years. And he name-checks numerous pubs that uh, me and my friends used to go in all the time, such as the Great Eastern and the Heart and Hand and the Cricketers and various streets in the North Lanes and various bookshops that we used to go in and hotels like the Metropole. The MacGuffin of the book is based around a lost Patrick Hamilton novel 
a sequel to the West Pier called The Palace Pier. And supposedly this is the book that uh, Patrick Hamilton was working on at the end of his life. And it contains a couple of passages of pastiche Hamilton, which I'm just going to oh, read now. Oh. And the jury gathered round the table of experts <laughs> pass their of, judgment of, on it. A okay. Of, a lot of sucking of cheeks. There is no title page, just the title itself at the top of the first sheet, Palace Pier. His heart jumps as he reads the opening sentences. There are those women who lack morals as bald men lack hair. They are not in themselves immoral. They are not even amoral, any more than one would call a cat amoral. They are simply deficient in moral values, as other women, though none of their own doing, may be lacking in vitamins. (laughs) Such a one was Dorothy Ruth Ferris, the only daughter of a pharmacist, Stuart is laughing, and his wife, living appropriately enough as it was to turn out in the shadow of Lewis Prison. While at the small private school to which her parents could just afford to send her, Ruth, as she wished to be known, contemptuously consigning the Dorothy, her mother's maiden name, to the ash heap of history, began for no discernible reason, whether psychological, pathological or traumatic, and after two blemishless terms during which the only black mark against her was a charge of shoving at netball, to get into the habit of helping herself to small sums of money, or other items she came across while compulsively rifling the pockets of garments hanging in the cloakroom. Oh, I'd read that. You know what? I think that it's all is bloody good. It's good, Shopping apart from the fact that there is no way that Patrick Hamilton would ever use the word netball. <laughs> that's, that's very good. Everything, that else, is, everything else just about uh, spot yeah, on. Okay, so... so, so, is so it, does it work? Okay, so the book, the book is really good fun. It name-checks Patrick Hamilton, but it also name-checks, quite knowingly, Julian McLaren-Ross, yeah. Norman Collins, Gerald Kirsch, and all, all these writers of the kind of London Soho demimonde, uh, of whom, presumably, Waterhouse was him personally familiar Don't with who he was. He was kind of... In the, he was that transition. I mean, he was... Waterhouse and um, Jeff Bernard were... Well, I was just about to say, Jeff. So the, reading this book really reminded me of two things. You and I have to indulge me still further. So I said I lived in Brighton, and uh, this was a very nostalgic read for me, Palace Pier by Keith Waterhouse. I really loved it. And yes, Jeffrey Bernard. One of the things I remember going to in Brighton in about 1989 or 1990 was the opening touring night before its London transfer of Jeffrey Bernard is Unwell by Keith Waterhouse starring. at the Theatre Royal Brighton, starring Peter O'Toole, a show that normally runs two and a quarter hours. On the night we went, it ran four and a half hours. <laughs> <laughs> no. Because they had bust in Keith Waterhouse and all his mates from the Coach and Horses Brilliant. and all the hacks that Ber- Jeffrey Bernard knew and Jeffrey Bernard. And so every joke got a round of applause and a raucous laugh. And also, after the interval, during which drinks were taken by all concerned, the energy coming off O'Toole was so incredible. He got one, you know, standing ovation after another. And I don't know if you've seen Jeffrey Bernard is Unwell, but there's an amazing bit where he does a trick with an egg. I've never known an atmosphere in a (laughs) theatre before, during, and specifically after that trick had been successfully pulled off by Peter O'Toole. The look on Peter O'Toole's face. (laughs) I remember the disbelief that he'd done it. So so it reminded me of that. It's wonderful, right? Really, really wonderful. The other thing it reminded me of, thinking about Peter O'Toole, and I was talking about this on Twitter this week, I took my mum for her... 
birthday last weekend to the Grand Hotel in Eastbourne. We had tea at the Grand. And I remember that the last time I'd been at the Grand in Eastbourne was for the BA conference, oh, the Booksellers Association conference, 20 years ago. Yeah. And I had I gone to a promotional breakfast uh, at the <laughs> BA conference. They tend to wheel in authors and, and the, the, the assemble booksellers, listen breakfast, to them. Breakfast, lunch and dinner. Yeah. Well, surprisingly, lunch and dinner were not on the agenda for the appearance of Peter O'Toole in Eastbourne <laughs> at the Booksellers Association Conference. So I went to this breakfast. It was a breakfast to celebrate the publication of... The first, the first book in his autobiography when he never did another one after that. Precisely. Yeah. Okay. Oh. So, they, so Peter's there. He's very elegant, smoking, I seem to remember. And uh, he speaks about his book. He reads a little bit of his book. It's absolutely wonderful. And uh, then they say, would anybody like to ask a question? And a brave woman <laughs> puts up her hand and says... Yes, I'd, I'd like to ask Peter, how, how, you, how, how did you write your book? And he looks at her and he said, I used a pen and a piece of bloody paper. <laughs> and that was the end of the Q&A. So I love, so to go back to Palace Pier by Keith Waterhouse, I just, I, thank you E.O. Higgins. This was like a proper a trip down memory lane for things that I had both lived and had not lived. Nostalgia. <laughs> Nostalgia for things that I'd never actually done, you know. So wonderful, wonderful book. Now it's commercials. <laughs> Which brings us really more seamlessly than usual. More seamlessly than ever. To the subject of our... The okay. Slaves of Solitude. So we're going to have... So John and I are going to inaugurate the discussion of Slaves of Solitude by Patrick Hamill. Let's clink glasses over there. There we go. Can I say, it's the most alcoholic-smelling drink I've ever had in my life. I've never tasted gin and French before, everybody. Here we go. Well, it's like sherry with added alcohol. It's it's like a crap martini. That's that's what it is. Oh, God, that doesn't muck about. (laughs) I must say, though, it's it's quite Moorish. I say, after the first sip, you had had me at hello, Andy. (laughs) So, Stuart, we, as we traditionally ask on here, we're going to talk a bit about what Patrick Hamilton means to readers and publishers and booksellers, I think, in a minute, and writers, indeed. But when did you first encounter uh, Slaves of Solitude or Patrick Hamilton? Well, I, can, I know specifically when I encountered Patrick Hamilton for the first time, um, Penguin Books were doing a promotion. When I was working in a, in, in a bookshop in Birmingham, they were trying to promote a bunch of classics or 20th century classics as you would a beach read and so um, it, was, it was a good you know, classic publisher wheeze so it was Bron- Bonjour Tristesse was the romance title <laughs> <laughs> um, the, the heady days uh, and, and, the, and the other one was, was uh, there was there was four I can't remember what the other, the other two were but the, the other one was, was Hangover Square and I'd never come across Patrick Hamilton before um and I was very taken with the title, um, and I started reading it, and suddenly I was swept up in in this this world, which was very much like the world in which I lived, but very different. And I and um, there was just something about the absolute baseness of the characters. There was something about the 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 kind of refracted, boozy lens that he that he cast over people who were just lost and not really belonging in, in, in any form of society. And that, and that appealed to me in a, in a very, very, very visceral way. Um, uh, so I tried to seek out 
everything that Hamilton had written, which um, was difficult because most of it was out of print at that point. So when are you talking about? 1997, this would have been. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So pretty much everything was out of print, but I managed to get an old copy of um, the the Gorse trilogy. Um, uh, But I was put off of that because of the Nigel Havers adaptation. Oh, God, charmer. The charmer. And so I just sort of kept that. I didn't... It it wasn't... Because it it was about a a rich person. I wasn't interested in that. And I still struggle with reading books about rich people um, and um, literature not really for you right? <laughs> I, I have to read carefully um, and then uh, and then I came across Slaves of Solitude because Constable reissued it in whenever it, whenever it was and um, and I saw it in a bookshop and I thought oh my goodness me I've got, I've got to get this book because it's, an, it's another Hamilton that I've not got um, and I read it um, in uh, just before my birthday in 2008, and I know this because I've got a train ticket inside the book, yeah, uh, yeah, which yeah. tells me when I when I read it. Um, and going back, it just reminded me of just the 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 sheer um, pleasure is the wrong word, but the the the, um, the feeling that I had of of a close kinship with um, both writer and character and uh, place and time, and it. It, it did something kind of unusual to, to, towards me, and I, I read that, and then I read the Twenty Thousand Leagues and uh, Twenty Thousand Streets Under the Sky, um, and on the back there's a quote um, from uh, the, the, from the Observer, I think it is, and uh, it says that Patrick Hamilton um, uh, minds loneliness and self delusion uh, better than any other writer, and then I realised that that's basically all the stuff that I write is exactly the same as what <laughs> Hamilton had been doing, and, and it was you know that that label. Um, was it entirely the kind of characters? And I, I, I realised that if, if I hadn't, you know, read Hamilton, I wouldn't have been able to lovingly rip him off. <laughs> I was disappointed when they announced the musical Hamilton to discover it, <laughs> <laughs> well, it wasn't about Patrick Hamilton. Oh, wouldn't, it be uh, wouldn't that be amazing? Wouldn't, wouldn't um, listen, when, when did you... Uh, uh, same question to you, but, but oh, ha- Patrick Hamilton rather than Slaves of Solitude? I don't know. Um, yes, no, I, I think I read Hangover Square first. I, I think... Uh, slightly dully, I think it was recommended by my sister, um, but I read several of them and his, his observation is so acute, I don't know that there's a, there's a better reporter of dialogue in terms of dull dialogue, the way that people talk mm. to each other when they're drunk, I don't think anyone has ever written it better, he, he, his vision is like a laser and it's a laser cutting through the sort of blamange of drunkness. It is absolutely extraordinary. And he has such tremendous insight into the, into the lives of, of seemingly drab, unhappy people in, in a way that, that, that puts you inside them rather than just observing them. I'm going to answer my own question for once. Uh, when, when Andy, when did you first encounter Patrick Hamilton? <laughs> I've got a theory about Patrick Hamilton. So I wrote one of the books that I wrote about in the year of reading dangerously was Twenty Thousand Streets Under the Sky by Patrick Hamilton. It always struck me. I was a bookseller for many years, and it always struck me that booksellers really love Patrick Hamilton, right? Partly because you know they spend a lot of the time in pubs. Feeling sorry for themselves, right? <laughs> After I work. think that's a, that's a misrepresentation of what every bookseller in this country. Uh, it might be true, but I don't say it. But I never actually read anything by Patrick Hamilton. So I, I talk about, I'm just going to read a little bit from the Year of Reading Dangerously about 
why I decided I needed to read Patrick Hamilton, having said that I read him for years, right? These were all books, to a greater or lesser extent, that defined the sort of person I would like to be. They conveyed the innate good taste someone like me would possess effortlessly. If you asked me if I liked Patrick Hamilton's work, for example, I would almost certainly reply in the affirmative. Moreover, I thought of myself as a Patrick Hamilton fan, despite never having read anything by Patrick Hamilton. It was easy to maintain these two apparently contradictory positions. One did not necessarily cancel out the other. It seemed inevitable that I would become a Patrick Hamilton fan once I found the time to read him, so why refrain from assuming that identity in advance? It need not even alter if I were to discover that, on settling down with a book by Patrick Hamilton, I didn't much care for it. There would always be another book I might read at some hazy point in the future, and like Moore, confirming the high opinion I had of Patrick Hamilton, though today I had read nothing which matched up to the esteem in which he was held by me. And with this certain prospect fixed on the horizon, so the likelihood of ever reading Patrick Hamilton receded still further. <laughs> I was the victim of a self-confidence trick. So I knew in my sick and corrupt heart that you were supposed to like Patrick Hamilton if you were the sort of person that I aspired well, I, to be. I, I think this... Fortunately, when I did read Patrick Hamilton, you of course, I absolutely it. loved it. John, when uh, did you I, first? I had a similar... Well, I, you know, I was trying to remember, but I think this was a particular, particular Waterstones thing. I think Patrick Hamilton somehow in the 80s, early 90s, became a cult writer and I, I, you know. Hangover Square became the book that all booksellers sort of weird I don't know on some strange yeah. osmotic process yeah. that when you you know it was exactly what you say you'd say Patrick Hamilton you know oh yeah yeah, yeah I mean <laughs> and then of course we also had this strange thing that the headquarters of some bit of W.H. Smith was called Craven House oh, <laughs> <that> <laughs> yeah, so so my, actually my Hamilton's first not particularly I have to say typical Patrick Hamilton was I read Craven House and then I thought which I quite liked and then I read Hangover Square which I absolutely loved and then I weirdly until a few weeks ago stopped because I just always thought oh there'll be time for me to get back on top of all the Patrick Hamilton novels I haven't read but actually I have to say I look this last week reread Hangover Square which I loved but I don't think I love it as much as I love I think Slaves of Solitude is my favorite book that we've ever done on the podcast well, wow! I really, really? Do. I really, really, do. I really, I, there's so much in this book. It's sort of distilled. It's you know sometimes you get a book when you think somebody should have written this novel about England during the war. I've never read it. I, not even Nigel Bolchin, who we liked. Nobody's yeah, yeah. ever quite got the boredom because the war is a is a character in the book, right? Yeah. The pilferer. The, yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, he writes, I think, as well as Muriel Spark and as brassily as Muriel Spark, but he he's writing about characters who are. There's so many bits you could read, but the sitting in that, the sitting in that front room and not yeah. talking to I'm one another. I'm just going to read the blurb on the back of this uh, cardinal edition uh, of the Slaves of Solitude, and then so, I th- I'm going to ask what's on the front. Yeah, there's so a fantastic uh, Bill Brandt photograph of a woman who may have taken drinks <laughs> uh, before the drink she's currently taking, and then I might ask you if you have you got something to read. It's trying to f- so I'm much. Well, yeah, I'll, read the blurb, like, I'll read the blurb, and yeah, then and then I, you yeah, know. Got, got, so, so uh, for those of you who haven't read *The Slaves of Solitude*, read it now. Read it now. But here are here, here's the blurb on the back of this cardinal edition. It is late 1943. Many blitzed Londoners have fled to the soulless boarding houses of melancholy riverside towns. One such refugee is the circumspect Miss Roach, 39. 
Still commuting into London by day, she pecks at spam and mashed potato by night under the conversational direction of loquacious braggart and resident old goat, Mr Thwaites. Mr Thwaites torments Miss Roach. It gives his life purpose until the arrival of a brash German vamp called Vicky Kugelman, who winds up even Miss Roach into modest notions of revenge. Enter a good-time American lieutenant who is something in laundry across the pond, and the blackout battle is on. As Patrick Hamilton toys fiendishly with his character's vulnerabilities, the loneliness, austerity and bleakness of little lives in a big war, a very particular kind of home-front world is vividly recreated, where only imagination, artistry and the blackest of humour are not rationed. And then there's a wonderful... That's pretty good. There's a wonderful quote by Anthony Pohl. Dickens with a touch of E.F. Benson. <laughs> I mean, Dickens, Dickens... He gets compared to Dickens a lot, doesn't he? Patrick Hamilton. It's the exclamation marks. <laughs> um, is it? Yeah. Um, but, it, but it's the kind of grotesquerie, I think, as well. Um, the bit that I've picked out is, 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 um, is perhaps atypical, because it's perhaps a little bit more subtle than, than, than some of the other bits, but I think this was the bit that, among many bits in this book, which utterly broke my heart. This is one, and this is a scene with the with the aforementioned Vicky Kugelman, and uh, I mean, she yeah. is she is out with what, um, what a piece of work. What a piece oh, of work. Yes. We'll talk we'll talk more about her later. <laughs> um, uh, but this is they're, they're out. Miss Roach is out with Vicky Kugelman and the person that Miss Roach considered to be her American, who is the lieutenant, and the lieutenant is uh, is out drinking. And the lieutenant is a really fascinating character. I'd like to talk about him more if that's at all possible. But I, uh, but this is this is a quick scene that broke my heart um, I'm not going to do any accents so she's, she's got kind of vaguely German, Germanic accent Vicky and um, the American the lieutenant has got an American accent I'm not going to do that um, now I buy you a drink said Vicky at last and on the, the lieutenant protesting no I send you around I send you all around and she went away to the bar to get it Miss Roach felt certain that the lieutenant must be experiencing something of the same feeling as herself and thought that now was the moment to say something about it but she didn't quite know how to put it. Oh, I'm sorry about all this, was what she wanted to say. But something stopped her. Instead, she said, I'm afraid Vicky's getting a bit tight. You mustn't let her have so much. The lieutenant who was playing the machine paused a moment before replying, Tight? he said. She's not tight. I'm glad you brought her along. She kind of lightens things up. I, I mark the same. I mark the same page. It's unbearable, isn't it? Yeah. Unbearable. I mean, yeah. I mean, no one yeah. I think has written better about those tiny nuances. That that the feeling of being being bullied, that yeah. the, the sense of people ganging up yeah. on you. For me, that's what this book and, is. And it, 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 it's yeah. just it's yeah. it's the precision, every little nuance, every little, the way that Vicky Kugelman starts to. To, to, with the, the, the uh, definite article starts to say, well, that's a very good thing. <laughs> I just wanted to read, because we're talking about drink, but there's a brilliant passage about drink, which I, there are many brilliant passages <laughs> about drink, but um, Miss Roach, who is the sort of the, the, the heroine of the book, um, and this is... Uh, 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 this is about drinking, really. Without any taste for drink, and originally half-scandalised by the notion of drinking in public or of drinking at all, these women would at first imagine that the pleasure they obtained from the new habit lay in the company, the lights, 
the conversation, the novelty or the humour of the experience. Then, gradually, they would perceive that there was something further than this, that the longer they stayed and the more they drank, the more their pleasure in this pastime was augmented, reaching, at moments, a point almost of ecstasy. Finally would come the realisation that the drink itself was not only intimately associated with, but was almost certainly the immediate cause of their sensations. And the bolder spirits among them would come to profess this openly, going so far as to make jokes about it, urging their friends with naive abandonment to have another, speaking of having had too much, finally of being drunk, or of the danger of getting drunk. Actually, very few of these women were constitutionally capable of getting drunk, but only of getting swimming sensations in their heads and wanting to go home and eat or go to bed. Mm, that's so good, isn't it? it? It's, it you know, it, it, I mean, that's kind of every... And I think that's one of the things that he is the best writer about pubs. Yeah. I, I, pub made life. A, I made a list of the things at which I think... I mean, in some senses, I think, we can talk about this, Hamilton is a limited writer who excels at certain things. At, I will make, give you the list of the things at which I think he excels first, and then you can yeah. agree or disagree, right? No, no, I was just going to say, you know that thing that I was going to say that you said... Yeah, that yeah. Was, Is that it? Well, not far off, almost exactly, but I was going to say that he's, um, he's not an amazing, totally beyond brilliant writer, but he's an exceptional novelist. Yeah, interesting. Yes, I agree. Um, I think the prose, the prose is sometimes a bit flat and a bit ordinary... But the things that he does within his novels with, for instance, character, are exceptional. Yes, his focus is yeah, extraordinary. Yeah. It's narrow but extraordinary. So, he, so I made this little list, yeah. which was, these are the things at which he excels. Booze, boozers, specifically those two things, right? He's brilliant, as John just said, at, at conveying the experience of different types of drinking and different states of mind while drunk. But he's also fantastic at the kind of weird bonhomie or terror of the pub environment mm. he's fantastic at bores he writes oh. bores brilliantly <laughs> there's one in this the, novel oh. called Mr Thwaites yeah, yeah, the, 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 the greatest bore in literature the yes. Mr Eccles in uh, yeah, Mr Eccles, Mr. Eccles in 20,000 Streets yeah. Under the Sky as well uh, he is very good on both Brighton and London mm. Graham Greene said he was the preeminent Brighton novelist, novelist of Brighton, but he's also one of the great novelists of London, right? Well, the certainly, I mean, you, 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 I mean, when I got to London, the first thing I did was I went to go and have a look around at Earl's Court, to see the Hangover Square, hangover square and, yeah. and I got to Earl's Court and it was, the, there was nothing of the, of the book there. And yeah, and he creates a landscape. He creates a landscape <laughs> and a, a mental landscape, and also a physical landscape, which is in, in, indescribably his own. You know that they, are, they yeah, yeah. You you know that you are you are in Hamilton territory. You know, you, sometimes you can even go into a pub, as you did today, John. Um, go into a pub, and you know that it's a Hamilton pub. You know that he could have easily be sat sitting at the bar there. Or, but the other, sorry, to return to what I was saying, the other things that are about which Hamilton writes brilliantly, and we'll come on to the reason for this, is in addition to you know drink and, and pub balls, a lot of pub life. He is brilliant on obsession. And cruelty. Yeah. Who writes cruelty better? Human cruelty to other human beings. I'm going to go out on a limb here because I think that 
without Hamilton, I don't know whether Pinter ever actually I totally read. Agree. You know, he must have done because the power dynamics of, yeah. between the characters in this novel, in particular, the the triangle between the the lieutenant Miss Roach and and Vicky Kugelman is it's, it's amazing. It's even even when it's you know when you get towards the end, and it, it feels like it's going to denouement. You don't even realise really. Is this going to end? Is this how it's going to end? Is this it, it, what is it? What is going to happen? And the the compression of it in mm. that when you become so obsessed with someone and so obsessed with it with a with a power triangle that the merest syllable can completely swing the power. She he's got exactly that, and that is exactly the way that that works. And because he's created this prim character who is constantly doubting herself, constantly you know he, he flits into her mind, and. The, she's constantly doubting herself, you know, oh, is she evil, is she not? Is she a Nazi, is she not? And all of these kind of things. And it's, it's brilliant, a psych- psychological exploration of, of, of how one feels, particularly after a big night or, or anything like that, where, mm. you know, like, are you, you know, may, maybe she isn't as bad as, uh, as I thought and all the rest of it. Um, but he, he, he teases that out. And, the, and then you realise that it's on the, ter- like you say, the turn of, one phrase, yeah. one, sentence, one, just, thing, one thing taken just slightly the wrong way and it just unravels in the worst kind of... Well, we should, we should also say one of the other things that Hamilton is so brilliant at writing about because it's, you know, where he spent much of his life. Slaves of Solitude is set in a shabby boarding house as is his earlier the novel, Craven House, the Rosamond Tea <laughs> He's so good on the... Oh, it's amazing. The enforced yeah. Terrible. Yeah. The atmosphere of that dining room, the pain of it, and the, the exactitude of it. I, I, I made notes, uh, a lot of notes, when I was reading the book about the second time because, because I, you know, I write books set during the war. And I well, we, the, yeah, but we, we, I was going to yeah. ask you. So, as a novel about the Second World War, how does this compare with other things from the same period, well, or just after the war? In fact, when this well, was for me, it was perfection because it's a book about the war written during the war, so I could be by a very good writer, so I could be absolutely certain that what he was seeing and what he was observing actually existed. It was there. And so, I mean, you know, I I actually wrote notes on it, um, it, you know, my research file, things like Miss Roach, vaguely lefty, reads the News Chronicle, Mm. Mr Thwaites reads the Daily Mail, Miss Steele, refined, reads the Times, and Mm. Mr Prest, common, the Daily Mirror. (laughs) He's got the exactitude of it. But also beautiful details, like the fact that... um, um, for instance, in, in the blackout, in the morning, sometimes the lights would go on in the morning because there was yeah. no blackout. And, and actually seeing lights in the dark yeah. was magical. And in the evening, just before the blackout time, one or two shop lights would go on. And you, and you were saying, weren't you, that you... Um, we've, we mentioned the character of Vicky Kugelman. I have slightly... <laughs> you slightly borrowed her, I slightly her, right? borrowed her. In, um, in, in uh, one of my books, Crooked Heart, it's set in provincial it's set in St Albans during the war and I created two Austrian refugees Vicky is German um, one of whom the main woman is not uh, Vicky but her friend Birgit who's rather jolly in a painful way and always shouts about defending British beer and British cakes <laughs> I'm afraid I slightly stole Vicky because Vicky is so marvellous and painful and horrible and her, her use of Slang, which oh, agonising. Can I just read yeah, yeah, a, a tiny bit of Vicky causing Miss Roach pain by her use? Um, why, said the lieutenant, can you make a cocktail? 
Can I make a cocktail, said Vicky. Oh, boy, can I make a cocktail? <laughs> From which I take it, said the lieutenant, apparently delighted rather than nauseated by this, <laughs> by this excursion into his own idiom, that you can make a cocktail. Can I make a cocktail, said Vicky, conscious of having made a success and so enlarging upon it. Or can I make a cocktail? Uh-huh. Oh, boy, wizard. Oh. <laughs> and okay. and the Miss Roach agonised by that. Yeah. Interestingly, though, oh, this is the third time that I've read this book, and I began to see things differently this time, Ooh, slowly, no. um, about two characters in particular, Vicky being one, and um, Mr. Thwaites as well, slightly. Um, and the reason why... Slightly. I sli- sli- Before, wait, wait a minute, I'm going to hold that there, yeah. Can one we, of you explain have... who Mr. Thwaites well, is? Can I read a classic bit of Thwaites? Okay. He's, a, he's a big, big older bloke. He's big older bloke. Spec. He's, he's resident. He's a bully. He's a bully. Yeah. He's resident at the Rosamond Tea Rooms uh, guest house. Where, he, not, where he, not much conversation goes on unless it is, he is kind of yeah, leading. It is implied that he is a Nazi sympathiser <laughs> and he is described more than once by Patrick Hamilton as the president in hell. So, John, they have been out, Vicky Kugelman and Miss Roach, and the lieutenant have been out, the lieutenant have been out, and they, this is them the next morning in the Rosamond Tea Rooms. And there's converse, light conversation um, uh, about the evening. <laughs> yes, it was very nice, said Miss Roach, and Vicky said, Yes, we enjoyed ourselves very much. I wish I'd been with you, said Miss Steele, as usually advertising a trifle absurdly her anti-fogey attitude to life. I'd have enjoyed it myself. Yes, I wish you had, said Miss Roach, and wondered how much Miss Steele actually would have enjoyed it. There was a short silence, and Mr Thwaites began. And didst thou dance and dally and trip the lightsome toe, he asked, e'en unto the small hours of the morn? Oh, no, said Vicky. We were in before twelve. Like Cinderella, said Miss Steele from her table, and Vicky, not answering, Miss Roach said, Yes, that's right, like Cinderella. It was characteristic of Vicky to have let Miss Roach to answer Miss Steele. Now that Vicky was established in the boarding house, it was becoming more and more clear that she took hardly any notice of, had hardly a word for anyone but Mr Thwaites. And didst thou imbibe mighty potions from the fruit of the grape? (laughs) Mr Thwaites went on, pursuing God Bacchus in his unholy revels. Oh, yes, said Miss Roach, we have a certain amount to drink. As Mr Thwaites was trothing, it looked as though, on the whole, he was going to be fairly lenient. And hast thou one ache this morning, asked Mr Thwaites, appertaining unto head and much repentance in thy soul, forsooth? Oh, not so bad, said Vicky. It might be worse. And what did you dance? Asked Mr. Thwaites, detrothing in a sudden axis of bitterness. Jazz, I suppose. <laughs> there was a pause. Oh, it's not jazz now, said Miss Steele. You're old-fashioned, Mr. Thwaites. It's boogie-woogie now, isn't it? <laughs> and so on. But that's that, him so, good so, so, that's, that's Mr. Thwaites. Thwaites. That's the monstrousness yeah. of Thwaites. But that's right. Thwaites in a good... And, and but as you're saying, so Stuart, you're going to say... Well, I think that one of Hamilton's truly great um, uh, moments uh, as a writer, I think probably his greatest um, greatest achievement is to, when the time comes to feel sorry for Mr. Thwaites, we feel sorry for him. Yeah. Uh, and he is a truly odious human being. And the way that he creates that character, there, there is, I mean, obviously, he, he, 
Hamilton hates him. I mean, there's no mm. doubt about it. But there is a smidge, just a just a soups on there of humanity within it, which keeps him, you know, as hateful as he is. We're still kind of interested in him, and because he's because he is an embodiment of a man that still exists now. You can go to any pub up yes. and down the country, yeah, yeah, yeah. and you will hear someone truthing. You, you, I, 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 you know, like the brilliant thing about it. He's a fantastic character because he's so well written. His lines, he has some of the best lines in the book. He really does. And, and then the, the, he has those the, moments where... The viciousness. The viciousness when he has that particular moment when he really just sticks the knife like, in. Yeah. There's this brilliant quote. I, Stuart, I hoped you were going to defend Thwaites, right? There's this brilliant quote from Doris Lessing where she's talking about <laughs> Thwaites and <laughs> Vicky Kugelman. And she says, there is no possible defence to be made for either unless it is that they are too stupid to know how vile they are. No, I disagree with that. I do do disagree on that. Because I I think Vicky Kugelman is actually defensible. Is she evil? Because not even uh, even Miss Roach really understands how bad she is and how much of of an an evil... Because she spends a lot of time vacillating between these two things. Is she an evil, dirty Nazi? Or is she just like, you know, a normal woman trying to eke out her her time? And... um, and in the sense that all of the characters are put on time, you know that they are they are they are they are trying to make the best out of a terrible thing. And is there with her? Is she as guilty as Miss um, Roach eventually um, um, puts her as? You know, you know, because we see yeah. it very much from her perspective. There's a lovely yeah, yeah, moment though at the end where she sees her sitting. You know, she sees her sitting, and she realizes, and she's going off with that. You know. <laughs> spoiler alert she's going off to, back to London Miss Roach and she sees Vicky Kugelman sitting there and she has this it's it's not exactly a moment of pity but she sees the sad empty squalor of Vicky Kugelman's life and is able it's what does he say it's a lovely she probably wasn't really the concentration camp stadium yelling rich fruity German Nazi which Miss Roach had at times thought her. And yet she also very possibly was. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and Miss Roach now found it easy to forgive her. And I, but that's I, perfect I, Hamilton. It's like, yeah. He, yeah, yeah, yeah. He, he, it's like he, yeah. doesn't, he never... This could be a really sentimental, soppy novel. Yeah. But, yeah. but it's totally not. But I... You see, I think both Waits and, and um, Vicky are taking advantage of a peculiarly vulnerable person, the sort of person who gets bullied in the playground. Miss Roach is plain, she's earnest, yeah. she's honest, and she cannot, she doesn't have the viciousness that they have and can't defend herself against, against them. And they are classic bullies in a pincer move. Horrible. And I, I think he, for, for all... Um, Patrick Hamilton's uh, weird attitude to women, which we'll I'm sure we'll get onto. Yeah. Um, I think his his um, portrait of Enid Roach is extraordinary. He, she's, it's I, so I sensitive, it's, it's so painful, it's so brilliant. She's a small person in a small life who knows her smallness, and it's agonising to her. She knows she's not attractive, she knows that people aren't really interested in her, and yet she has a, a small amount of self-worth. And Vicky Kugelman sees that and squashes it. So I, I'm um, going to say boo, I, I, boo to Vicky I, 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 I don't know. I just think that, that because of the way that the novel is structured, then we are encouraged to feel that way. But actually, if you analyse what she does at those particular times, you know, I, I'm not so sure that, that you know, unlike Thwaites, where, you know, 
his actions are very very clear you know that, that you know that because he's given center stage by hamilton i think if you actually look at exactly what vicky does how much of that is actual bullying how much of that is actually in in its mind and I, I do wonder whether whether Hamilton is playing a very hmm. interesting, <laughs> interesting game with that, where you actually where you of gaslighting. Yeah, everybody. yes. <laughs> but if, but I, I do wonder where, where whether with with her particularly, um, we're kind of blinded by yeah. Hamilton's obvious sympathies for for Enid. He was also he was I mean, he went mad. I mean, he's, he became very as this gin and French really kicks in. It seems appropriate to uh, to do the biography <laughs> of Hamilton, right? Yeah, well, I'm getting, um, getting a little low. <laughs> yeah. So Patrick Hamilton, born seventeenth March nineteen o four in Hassocks near Brighton. <laughs> Hamilton died September nineteen sixty two, age fifty eight in Sheringham, Norfolk. It's uh, a miracle he made it to that. I was going to say, yeah. fell down a lot in between. <laughs> he was one of three children, uh, a brother called Bruce, who was also a playwright and novelist, and a uh, sister called Lala, an actress. And I'm just going to read Michael Holroyd's brilliant description of uh, the circumstances in which Patrick Hamilton grew up. Uh, his apparently conventional upper-middle-class family background in the south of England seethed with tragicomic extravagance. Bernard Hamilton, his untrustworthy and vainglorious father was himself a novelist, a truly awful novelist, <laughs> who pursued an astonishing variety of additional roles as an occasional soldier, part-time a theosophist, and bewigged, though non-practising, barrister. Also an impressionable traveller, amateur actor, fascist, he was an ardent admirer of Mussolini, and dogged religious controversialist. At the age of 21, he had inherited a fortune and then married a prostitute who threw herself in front of a train at Wimbledon Station. His second wife, the sexually frigid daughter of a fashionable London dentist, what a phrase, <laughs> filled her time copying oil paintings, singing music hall songs and writing romantic fiction. She found compensation for a loveless marriage in the possessive love of her three children, of whom Patrick was the youngest. So it's in that kind of fevered, yeah. hothouse environment. If you know anything about Hamilton, you there's can see of, that... There's a lot of Thwaites in his dad. Thwaites in his dad, but also... Dad oh, yeah, absolutely. Because I read that, I read that yeah. introduction as well. And it's like, and first of all, I thought, someone's got to write a novel about Hamilton's dad. Because, I mean, like, he was it who called him... Um, he would have done well as a bad low comedian or something like that. That's yeah. right, yeah. But you yeah. can also see the things in his father's life, the marrying a prostitute the becoming a fascist, that Hamilton himself sort of lived, and he's an alcoholic. All these oh. things are, are either Hamilton does or he creates a mirror of. Yeah. I'll just say a bit more about him. So the, 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 the family was kind of da- downwardly mobile. They'd been very wealthy. They'd inherited yeah. a lot of wealth. But gradually, the, 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 basically, the father had drunk it and gambled it away. They had their own house in Hove, and then they moved to various guest houses... Patrick Hamilton was sent to Westminster School because he was a bright lad, but then they couldn't afford to keep him there, so he was taken away from there at the age of 15. And as, as Stuart was saying, he has this, this incredible run of success when he's yeah. very young. He publishes his first novel, Monday Morning, in 1925, when he's 21, and by the age of 30, he's written six novels, including the three novels in 20,000 Streets Under the Sky, The Midnight Bell, The Siege of Pleasure, uh, which is my favourite, and uh, The Plains of Cement, about three different, three or four characters, main characters, seeing the same story from different points of view, which is an incredibly precocious thing for a writer in their 20s to do, let alone do so successfully. And he also has a hit play 
called Rope. Huge. Rope Massive. Huge Massive. hit, yeah. which is subsequently made into a film by Alfred Hitchcock, of course. Of money from it, so he becomes very rich. Yeah, yeah. He's also, as you say, knocked down by a car in the late 20s or early 30s. And disfigured, or disfigured. so he fell. Anyway, so that yeah. kicks his yeah. alcoholism yeah. really into overdrive at that point. And by World War II, he's also written um, a very peculiar novel called Impromptu in Moribundia. Have you, have you, have you read that? No. It sounds totally nuts. Yeah. It's sort of is a it, Swiftian it, satire set on, a, on a, a, an alien planet. <laughs> <laughs> so Hamilton sl- sci-fi. Sounds. Yeah, yeah. Right. But he's also you written... heard it here first. <laughs> but he's written another massive hit play called Gaslight. Yeah. And in fact, the term gaslighting, which we've, I've been making jokes about, but that's entered... <laughs> General parlance in the last three or four years. Wouldn't he be delighted? Um, he would. He would love that. And it's been made. It was made into two films, and then, 1940s, he writes. Uh, he writes other plays, which are successful. He writes the novel Hangover Square in 1941, Slaves of Solitude in 1947, and he was also a communist. He was a didactic communist, and you can read these novels as he would in one on one level wish you to, as lessons in communism in the effect on society of the sort of, of the ragged trouser philanthropist by Robert Tressel. He's, of course, a much better writer than Robert Tressel is, so he can't cleave too closely to that ideological yeah. but I think the ideolo- template. But the ideology seems to be odd because um, his, his first commitment is to, to the work. It's, it doesn't appear to be political. I don't think there's anything yeah. particularly political in this, yeah. particularly... Where Miss Roach is um, is constantly harangued by Thwaites for your friends, your friends the, the Russians, Russians. Friends, the Russians. Mm-hmm. and yeah, yeah, yeah. you know it, it, it reminds me of a line from Faulty Towers when the guy dies, you know, the, the, the kipper and the corpse, and he comes downstairs and you know he's just given the breakfast to the, this dead person, and uh, and and Basil says to Sybil, you know, your friend, you know, the one in eight, and this kind of your friend becomes yeah. this kind of like, it's such an attack, isn't it? It's such yeah, an, yeah, yeah. It's like your friend, you, you know, like this is what you. That's, that's totally that is Mr. Thwaites. It is, it is, yeah. And 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 Miss Roach tries to counter him in a logical way. Uh, They're not actually friends of mine. It's yeah, pointless yeah, speaking it's, to a Mr. Thwaites we, like yeah, that. We should, we should also say um, we were talking about earlier that by the time he writes The Slaves of Solitude in 1947, he's putting away. It's re, is reputed to be putting three. away three bottles of whiskey, whiskey a day. <gasps> so you're reading what you're reading. We were talking about this earlier. It takes him three years to write, which normally his novels didn't take him that long to write, because he's kind of hanging on with his fingernails, concentrating to get this book out. And then after that, he writes um, the Gorse trilogy, The West Pier in 1952, Mr. Stimson and Mr. Gorse in 1953, and the final part, Unknown Assailant, in 1955, which is basically dictated while drunk. And then that's his last real work, and he dies of cirrhosis of the liver in... 1962. The thing I find fascinating about Patrick Hamilton, and I do think we have to say this, I know, John, you had read some of, and I've read Nigel Jones's biography of Hamilton through a glass darkly. It is quite unsettling to realise that the reason why Hamilton is able to write so meaningfully about things like drunkenness, cruelty and obsession... He lived it. ..is because he really did live it. I mean, the drunkenness, sure, but also there's all these stories about, for instance... The actress Geraldine Fitzgerald. He was a terrible, terrible stalker of women. Yeah. I mean, really. And she she, she felt that he was actually dangerous, didn't she? She moved to America to get away from him because he was stalking her. He would walk home and she felt... It wasn't just that she felt he was... She felt if he caught me, he would murder me. 
And the character of Netta in Hangover Square yeah. is based on her, who is, you know, murdered. murdered at the end. <laughs> no spoilers. But Netta is like an uber bitch, like a, like a beyond even Vicky Kugelman kind of level of, of, of absolute nastiness. And I think that um, one of the things which made me, which, which gave, gives me pause about Hangover Square particularly is the depiction of this, this woman is, yeah. is, you know, the devil incarnate. You know, she's, she is absolutely the worst human beings who have ever well, this, lived. And, and, and in and, a way that yeah. Vicky Kugelman isn't quite. I think he writes women, women's inner lives quite brilliantly, amazing, uh, yeah. unexpectedly uh, and uh, beautifully. It's amazing. I mean, one, one thing I wanted to say, because we haven't mentioned it, and I think it's, it's, it's really easy with this book to, to focus on Thwaites and Kugelman, but the hero of the book, and Laura Thompson, who is a massive fan of this book and also... Uh, has written a book about her grandmother who was a landlady during this exact period. And, it's a, and there's nobody... I mean, you're writing about pubs in the 1940s and 50s. You've got to talk about Hamilton. But she said in, in, in the book, she said, the revelation whereby Mr. Prest became the hero, becomes the hero of Slaves of Solitude is one of the most beautiful passages in 20th century literature. He can be seen as the embodiment of the spirit of the pub, of the be-human philosophy. But what's extraordinary is that in Patrick Hamilton's hands, this in itself acquires another dimension. Mr. Prest's very ordinariness and vulgarity has that power. At the end of the novel, he's given a part in a pantomime, a last-chance part owing to the widespread wartime call-up of actors, and offers a ticket to his fellow resident, Miss Roach, whom he likes, and he wants so much more from life than respectability can give her. And then she goes, and he's the hit of the show. It's just it is it's it's, it's an beautiful. He doesn't exist in the book no, before then. And then That's he the suddenly becomes thing. this incredible. Yeah. And yeah. there is a thing. Obviously, Hamilton himself has a sort of slightly sentimental, because he'd been a, he was a failed actor. But the the transformation when she goes and sits in this and watches Mr. Preston on stage with the children and his energy and he's suddenly transformed from this man in a bad tweed suit reading the Daily Mirror and is common into this incredible purifying agent in the book. She talks about purification. This is what David Lodge says about Slaves of Solitude. He says you can see that act of Prest's as analogous to Hamilton's, you know, final bow of potency in the book. And because everything is more or less over after... I mean, the Gorse trilogy isn't... It's interesting, but it's not... Mm. it's the obsession that he has with that sort of weird con man. I mean, it's it's brilliant. I'm just going to read the very, very last bit of the last line, and it is, as endings go, one of the great endings. But this is this is the last bit of the last line. God help us. God help all of us. Everyone. All of us. Oh, oh my goodness. <laughs> And that's the note on which we should probably draw things to a close. Thanks to our guests, Stuart Evers and Lissa Evans, and our producer, Matt Hall. Our extensive archive of old shows is available on SoundCloud at soundcloud.com forward slash backlistedpod, and we're available and active on Twitter and Facebook. So come and join in the conversation. But you know what? Because this is Ultimate Backlisted TM, <laughs> and because the drinks are really kicking in now, we're going to keep going. Hooray. So you're going to be able to listen to a bit more of us talking about Patrick Hamilton quite soon. So um, hopefully we'll see you back for that in a moment. If you prefer to listen to Backlisted without adverts, you can sign up to our Patreon. 
www.patreon.com forward slash backlisted. As well as getting the show early, you get a whole two extra episodes of what we call Locklisted, which is Andy, me and Nikki talking about the books, music and films we've enjoyed in the previous fortnight.